Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Maletic and today we are talking with Professor Helen Lockhead, the newly appointed President of the Australian Institute of Architects, the AIA. As the University of New South Wales' Dean of Built Environment, Professor Lockhead also reviews major development proposals in southwestern Sydney after her appointment as chair of one of the five Sydney planning panels. With 20 years of senior management and project delivery experience in Australia and the United States, her career is focused on the inception, planning, design and delivery of complex, large-scale urban projects. From 2004 to 2007, she was Executive Director of Sustainability at Sydney's Olympic Park Authority, after which she became Deputy Government Architect for New South Wales. In March of 2016, you wrote a piece for The Conversation where you said, among other things... The most successful outcomes of my career have been where the planning and procurement processes supported these design fundamentals. In every one of these roles, I have gained insights into how the politics play out. Can you give an insight by what you meant by how the politics played out and how much does politics really influence design um, in, let's say, cities like Sydney or Melbourne? Absolutely. Um, Sydney is growing into one of the more inequitable cities in Australia. Uh, If you think about, I don't know where you grew up, but I grew up in Sydney and it was a very homogeneous city in terms of a large middle class, a small upper class and a robust working class, middle class, I suppose you might describe it as. But today, the divide between the haves and the have-nots is often described uh, geographically as the latte line. And it's not a very uh, uh, attractive description, but it is is actually quite palpable. When you see that mapped on uh, the Sydney metropolitan area, the spatial divide in terms of who has access to education, to jobs, to uh, quality housing, to community services, to transport. Pretty much if you live on the east side of the latte line, you're a have, and if you live on the southwest side, you're a have-not. And obviously the Greater Sydney Commission's ambition through the Three Cities plan is to sort of redress that spatial inequity. So I do think uh, Sydney is a victim of its own success. We have a lack of affordable housing policy. We think the market will provide. Um, but we do need to temper that with actually good, robust policy, which manages to ensure that everyone have has a good quality of life. And that is what makes a livable city. Interesting. Speaking of, uh, of development, um, it has been said that plans to scatter Sydney's southern suburbs with high-rises, or high-rise development, will create eyesores to be regretted for generations. That's the fear that, that's prompting some of Australia's leading architects to call on the New South Wales government to rethink its plans to rezone the southwest for towers of up to 25 storeys. Um, what are your views on, on this? I mean, as chair of one of the five Sydney planning panels, um, I'm sure you do have a view. Um, there is the other side of where um, you know high, uh, the high density tends to have more of a sustainable bent. But what are your views about about all this 
proposed development? I think there is not a one-size-fits-all for any city. Cities are complex and they're geographically nuanced and you need to find the best solution for the best location. We seem to see high-rise development as a one-size-fits-all panacea to all our urban density departments you know, demands, I suppose you could say. Um, but really, there's a whole suite of issues that need to be addressed, where it's located, how it's going to fit in, how it's going to disrupt, what it will do to property values. Um, the, you, there's all these sorts of considerations. So I think it's not high-rise versus low-density housing. It, there's a mix and there's a kind of a gradient between low-density family houses where they may be appropriate to high-density high-rises where they may be appropriate. Um, you know, the Government Architects Office has recently uh, released a study or a report on the missing middle and talking about more sort of diverse forms of medium-density housing, but even things such as, you know, and there's a new SEP, State Environment Planning Policy, to look at, you know, more moderated forms between the single-family house. So you have dual occupancy, you have quadruplexes, you have six-packs, you have, you know, medium-sized, mid-rise development, you have high-rise development. There's not one solution. And I do think there has been a probably a push to promote high-rise over all those other options. If you look at some of the most memorable cities of the world, such as Paris or Barcelona, they're definitely not high-rise cities, and yet their density is multiple times greater than our city. So not one, there's never one solution. It's part of the solution. There are um, statistics I've dug up from the AI, and these may not be the most up-to-date, but it's what I found online, um, that about 22%, 23% of, of architects in Australia are women, which, I mean, seems fairly low. Um, is this the international experience as well? And how do we get, um, if, if these figures are correct, how do we get more uh, young girls, uh, uh, young girls at schools, more interested in in pursuing a career in architecture and construction, and or the AEC architecture, engineering and and construction? How, how do we how do we do that? Look, I think um, gender equity is very much front and centre in the minds of uh, education, industry and government right now. And I think there are policies being implemented across the board. I know, for example, in my university, I have specific KPIs which come right down from the University Council that I have to deliver deliver on in terms of ensuring not only parity in terms of female and male academics in my faculty, but also in in terms of promotional rates and... uh, you know, retention. So there, there are very clear KPIs for me to deliver on. In terms of the student body, we do have almost uh, equity in terms of architecture students, in terms of males and females. The real gap we see is when they move into industry. And as you say, they, they come in on lower salaries and they may have quite a, a steady um, increase in terms of their promotion and responsibility. But at some point, there's a stalling point, and I have to say it often um, correlates with child-rearing years. And then once that stall occurs, there is, you know, not necessarily a decline, 
but there may be a, a flat lining or departure from the architectural professions and then diversification. So you'll find people going into para-related professions or completely leaving the built environment um, industries or, and, or related disciplines to find a pathway through where they can accommodate life and um, professional demands. And I think that that says something about our professions. And I think construction is absolutely the worst. Um, it's, got, it's got worse in the last few years. I think since 2014 to 2018, it's gone down another 4%. So, um, and the attrition rate in the construction industry. Some of the stories, I mean, we have a very diverse portfolio in our faculty. We have all the built environment professions, um, right from industrial design, interiors, architecture, landscape architecture, planning, urban design, um, construction, project management and development. So we have that whole spectrum and construction is by far the worst. So we need to try harder. I am actually engaged with industry. We're trying to promote scholarships to get women into construction. We're trying to develop pathways and mentoring, work placements to to ensure that there are really clear pathways and mentorship for women once they decide to go into um, professional roles. But we need to make sure that if we want an industry which is good for women, it's got to be good for men as well. And construction is notorious, has notoriously high incidence of depression, um, marital breakdown because of the long working hours, you know, six-day week and 12-hour days and, you know, the second shift when you get home to just do all the computer work you couldn't do on site. If we can make it more family-friendly generally, it'll be good for women and it'll be good for men as well. And I think even in architecture, you know, the whole idea of the the all-nighter or the deadline or, you know, these things are very unfamily-friendly. You can either have a profession or you can have a life and you make that choice. This is just ridiculous. We need to... Um, evolve the disciplines and the profession to ensure that we can accommodate both. I'm wondering whether urban planning would, would play a part in this too. I mean, you know, I've heard a number of um, ideas, particularly from the New South Wales government, about the 30-minute city or having three 30-minute cities, I believe. That's their latest uh, iteration of that. Um, if, I mean, as you mentioned, everyone needs a career, everyone has to work. I mean, we can't, we no longer in the 1950s where you have breadwinner win, and, and, and homemaker. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, I'm wondering whether if we had cities designed that were more, dare I say, people-friendly, um, if that's the right term, uh, that would facilitate um, women staying in, in, in the field because a uh, lot longer because they don't have to spend two hours one way tra- travelling, um, you know, which you know is not good for anyone, male or female. And I can, from my own experience, I can attest to that. Um, would that be something that would help in terms of design, in, in, rather than just the soci- sociological factors? Absolutely. I, I mean, I do think, and this is with a tongue in cheek, you know, the idea of the thirty-minute city of these three sort of cities where you're trapped for the rest of your life and you can't move across boundary lines kind of does does sort of take my imagination as being a rather bizarre unintended consequence um, but I don't think that's the idea the idea is to have work school play 
living, you know, all those services within a reasonable distance. And that works at a neighborhood level, a town center level, a metropolitan level, and those circles. There's lots of overlapping Venn diagrams in that picture for sure. If you think about who goes and picks up the kids, um, you know, if you think about all the traffic on the road, it's it's sort of like, you know, you've got to drop one kid at the preschool, then you've got to take another kid to the big school, then you've got to go to work. Well, you know, if you've got to do these th- three trips before you get to your desk, um, or whatever it is that you do in your professional role, um, you're going to end up taking a car because all that schlepping around is not particularly easy in a city which is just strapped for public transport choices. So it doesn't make for a good um, you know, urban experience where we have to get in the car to do anything efficiently. If you, if you think about if you could change that paradigm and you could walk your kids to school and the preschool at the same place, then actually get on a, a light rail or a metro and just zip into the local centre and do your work, or you could telecommute from home uh, two days a week as w- and then have a choice about where you work on the other days or hot desk. These things all come into play. I mean, I think also this idea of, you know, metropolitan centres where you've got the big box and all that sort of thing, I think it's just so out of date because, in fact, we'd get to so much of these big box sort of retail opportunities online, but we really do go and shop every day for food and, and milk and vegetables and all those things on the way home. And we need those services close to where we work, where we pick up the kids, and they need to be walkable and accessible by public transport. So I think very strongly that being able to live and work and play all in the same locality is absolutely importable, uh, absolutely essential. And that's where affordable housing comes into it. And people often confuse affordable housing with public housing. And I think the emphasis in recent years in government is to focus on those most in need. But there's this, again, a missing middle in the uh, affordability quotient. You know, young professionals, um, young teachers, you know, teachers, uh, people who are absolutely key workers in our community are having difficulty paying rent and affording to live in re- in locations which are close to their work and close to their connection, their social you know um, networks. So if people want to have a family, they I, I talked to a young couple just recently. Um, I'm on this one of these planning panels and the planner who was working with us on a particular issue was in his early 30s, just married, and he said, oh, we've just moved to Newcastle. And he was working in Sydney. And I said, I, yeah, my, <laughs> I looked like you. I went like, what, what? <laughs> How do you do that? And I said, oh, oh, and what about your partner? And she said, oh, she works in Sydney too. And I said, you commute from Newcastle to Sydney? And he goes, oh, well, what we do is we come in, come to Sydney three days a week and we stay with my mother. Great if, it, great if you can do it. Um, and then we both telecommute two days a week. And then I thought, well, what then happens when you start having a family? Because they could actually get into the market. They could afford something um, more appropriate. These are two young professionals. And that was a choice that they made about commuting for this sort of time um, to manage a work, a job that they wanted and needed and a, a house that they desired and could afford. That's not a good model for urban living for anybody. 
It's funny you say that. I, I this morning caught the Newcastle train, not from Newcastle, but you know, from a, from the city suburb, and it's full of people. Um, like that. Like that, going to work in Sydney, yeah. which is amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, if we had a high-speed rail connection between Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong and the, you know, the rest of the universe for that matter, but at least in that corridor, it would be a completely different paradigm and a, dis- a, you know, a completely different discussion. And when we talk about the three cities, to me, that's the ultimate three-city model, the one that extends you know, along the coastal corridor where people really want to live. There's a high degree of amenity um, environmentally. It sort of makes sense because it's cooler than in the western parts of Sydney. You're not building on arable agricultural land. So there's a lot of compelling reasons for doing that. It's just not happening at this point and people are still making that journey and, and it's happening from below south of Wollongong and it's happening all the way to Newcastle as we know. Let's talk about education, a subject that I know you're very passionate about. Um, I recently read, I think it was actually also in the conversation, I think it was a couple of days ago actually, that by 2030, um, it's one of these predictions, you know, like by the year 2000 we were all going to have flying cars. Um, By 2030, um, 40% of all university degrees are going to be invalid or irrelevant at least. Um, In your capacity as Dean of the University of New South Wales Faculty of Built Environment, do you think there's a chance that architecture is one of those degrees that could, you know, is in danger of becoming irrelevant? And um, how would you, and if so, how would you change the the teaching or the delivery or the structure of of, of architecture to, to perhaps negate this situation or potential situation? Well, of course, you know, an article like that engages me very, <laughs> very intently because you go like, oh, my God, well, how does this affect us? What do we need to do? How do we need to change? But, of course, we are, you know, even before an article like that comes out, we're, we're, we're already, we've been already thinking about this for quite some time. Um, the profession has been changing. The profession, the profession has changed since I was at university. When I was at university, I had a T-square and a drawing board. I even, I mean, like I'm talking about, I didn't even have a parallel rule when I first started. I had a T-square. So like, you know, this is, I, I don't feel like I'm that old, but I'm old enough to remember using paper and a pencil. Um, and that's not necessarily the model that we use today. The process is the same though. I mean, you still need to kind of define the problem, conceptualize, you know, what are the needs? What is the problem? Conceptualize the options, present the options and, and iterate and develop a, a solution and document it and deliver it. This this process for design um, may have become concertinated. We may be doing it faster. Um, we have different mechanisms and tools to do it. I do believe that, you know, with um, modularization, with digital fabrication, with robots, there'll be a lot of the grunt work, which is so sort of mind-numbing in the production of architecture, will be um, mechanised or um, and artificial intelligence will certainly help that. I mean, we already use computers a lot already to sort of um, look at the planning scenarios or the solar access and and 
develop that to help us do our jobs quicker and more effectively. So we can't complain about technology. Technology enables us. It helps us to do our jobs more easily, more readily, and it frees us up to do the things um, which are much more creative and higher order thinking. So in terms of education, we are very much focused on a sort of a T profile for a graduate. So if you think of a capital T, where you have both deep knowledge and but also breadth. And so in our faculty, we focus on depth and breadth and interdisciplinary education. So while you do have disciplinary strength in architecture or disciplinary strength in landscape architecture or planning or, uh, or industrial design, for example, we also require that all students do interdisciplinary and collaborative learning, uh, whether they like it or not, really, um, because we also recognise that you need to have agility to work with others, to actually anticipate and look at projects from the outside, to look at maybe scenarios that um, you don't anticipate and to acknowledge and see other ways of working and doing and to bring that to the table in problem solving. The problems that I believe the architectural professions will get more and more engaged in, and you can see it today, are the more complex, open-ended and, and often wicked problems, which are not sort of I want a house, can you design it? Because that's pretty straightforward and it's been not so different from the beginning of the last century. You know, we've got new technologies, we've got new efficiencies, we've got new materials, but the basic needs of the human are not that different. Um, but it'll be more the more complex, uh, the, the sort of types of new buildings that we're developing, the scale of new buildings. I was on a panel yesterday where it ha it's a school for over 3,000 students in metropolitan Sydney from kindergarten, preschool, primary school, high school. Um, I mean, we're talking about huge complexes of learning, uh, ways of learning, of open-ended learning, of, of community access, of, of integrated with the TAFE College next door. I mean, that's still a building. It's still a problem. But the complexities in the interactions and the blurred lines between one function and another, between public and private, between shared use and, and singular use, really demand much um, sustainability, ensuring that it performs over a lifetime with low maintenance, um, low energy, economy of scale and efficiencies, managing traffic and drop off to all, you know, for all those kids, how do you operate it? I mean, there are so many contingencies that have to be considered in a project like that, and these are growing. So I don't think architects will lose their role. I think they will, ha they will have more agency in being able to contribute higher order thinking skills. And we need to educate our students to be able to operate in that world. And I often describe that we're educating students for professions uh, unknown, or like for, you know, professional lives uh, that we don't really have a definition for right now. And I think in a way, getting back to the women in architecture, a lot of them have defined professional paths, which they may not have anticipated at the beginning of their lives, but are quite happy to be in, engaged in now. And I think that that will be the model for most professionals. They'll have to, they may stay, start somewhere, you know, they may change, they may move, they may iterate, they may go back and get continuing professional education, they may evolve their skills on a continuing ongoing basis. And I think the definition of learning will be much more the lifetime continuum, continuum 
rather than I've got my degree, I've got my ticket, pop it in the bottom drawer and off you go. Uh, it's just not that way anymore. We all have to do continuing professional development, not just because it's a tick box for a registration requirement, but because we need to keep our skills um, current and we also need, need to be on the front of the curve rather than always on the back foot. And that's for everybody, not just the architectural professions. You're the president-elect, I believe. That, that is the right term, isn't it? Yeah. President-elect of the AIA. That, that your term starts next year, next year, 2019. Um, in terms of industry bodies, um, what um, are they changing in, in, in how they interact with their members, and, and what do you think an industry body should, um, you know, bring to the, you know, to the industry? Look, I, I think personally, I. Th- think we need to do much more on raising the profile of and importance of architects. Design is much more critical in complex urban environments. You know, when we had a low-density city model, you know, if your neighbour does something kind of pretty bad on their property and you've got a tree between you and them and there's a bit of space between you and them, you know, it's not such a bad... I mean, like, we can live with it. But as we're getting in much denser urban environments, proximity... It means that these tolerances are much finer. And as, pro- as, I, as I mentioned earlier, as projects are becoming much more complex, you need good design to resolve these, you know, competing agendas and um, nuances. For example, we've all been through that experience where someone has went, oh, we, make, we need to make accessible access. So they've put a ramp zigzagging right across the front entrance to the front door because, you know, they didn't actually really think about where the ground level of that building was going to be when, in fact, it's a new building that could have actually designed the ground floor at the, at the same level as the footpath rather than looking like it was retrofitted later. I mean, that, that is just, you know, a design nightmare and completely unnecessary if you had good design front and centre in the considerations for development. So we need to we need to preface design and so we need to advocate for the role of architects in doing that because really they're the only design they're the only professionals in the built environment industry who are, are really advocating for design and understanding how to get to those design resolutions. Of course you have to work with a whole range of partners to deliver it. But the design comes up front and centre in terms of making sure that the outcome you get is a good one and will have longevity. Um, I also think that we need to edu- we need to be focused on education, and I think not because I'm an educator, but because the the profession is changing. So, for one, the first one is advocacy, advocating for the role of architects in the built environment and the role of good design in the built environment. The second is education. I think, as we talked about, the profession is evolving and changing. So, therefore, we need to focus on what our professional members will need over the course of their lives in terms of continuing professional education and make sure that we are providing that to them so that they're going to be the best professionals they can possibly be for their whole career Um, and they still remain current and on the the cutting edge. And the third pillar is actually providing member services in terms of the the culture of architecture in terms of talks and conferences and seminars and, and, and other forms of engagement and to also... You know, bring up the next generation of of, um, 
architects, you know, through Sonar and Imagine and and other forms of public and cultural engagement. So I think there's lots of opportunities. There's the pub, you know, there's publication, there's conferences, um, there's talks, and there's also the demonstration of what we do through the work we do. So, but I think the three pillars of advocacy, education, and and doing what our members need, and in terms of the culture of architecture, is pretty important all round. How can the profession engage with universities? And on that point, um, how has engagement over the years between the AIA and and you know the, the universities has has that changed at all? Well, I mean, obviously, the AIA is part with the Architectural Registration Board has been part of the registration process um, and partners in that registration process for many many years. So they've always been uh, coming in and checking out what. You, and what we're offering in terms of our programs, providing advice and peer review. So that's been extremely important for the development of curriculum over many years, and I can see that continuing. But I think at a more um, fine-grained level, it would be great to see more more um, professionals engaged in the academy. I mean, we are educating profession, future professionals and we uh, we already do. I mean, we've got about 100 full-time academics, but we've got about 400 part-time academics that, you know, people who come in, um, they work in an office, they, but they come in and they lecture on a particular course or they teach in studio uh, or they offer one-off lectures about a particular area of expertise or a particular project uh, learning that they share with the students. You know, that engaging with industry is absolutely fundamental to the currency of our programs. And I'm sure that's the same in many schools, but it's absolutely fundamental to our pedagogy. And I would really like to see much more of this engagement. And it can be through, you know, mentoring, through work integrated learning, through research projects that we develop with industry, um, through uh, public talks, through conversations or debates, um, through public lectures like our Utsun lecture series. So I think there are a lot more opportunities and different kinds of engagement that we could have with the professions and that I, I would really like to um, promote. Obviously, you know, even our, our scholarships are often come from colleagues or alumni. So these are ways of engendering new graduates with a connection to industry and pathways into the profession, which is invaluable. So if you're interested, come and talk to me. <laughs> keep that in mind. I do think there's still a, um, a schism or a gap between the universities and the professions. I think there is very much the professional accreditation um, requires a certain skill set, yeah, but the university requires certain learning outcomes. So conceptually, the frame for a tertiary education is quite different from professional training. And so we're always trying to manage that tension in the university setting to enable both because we want to have students or graduates that are prepared for professional roles. But inevitably, there's always this gap. So I do think we can bridge that gap and a lot of that is through industry engagement, industry partnerships, work integrated learning, internships, um, 
having professors of practice, uh, which is very much core to the University of New South Wales model where you get eminent practitioners coming in to work in the studios to work with us. And, you know, Glenn Merkert obviously is, was our first professor of practice. Um, but we've also had Ken Maher and Richard Johnson. We now have um, Rachel Neeson, um, Philip Thallis, um, and we're doing a call right now um, for a new portfolio of professors of practice. So again, developing a sort of an interwoven communication between practice and the academy are absolutely key and fundamental to students being ready for work lives and still managing those educational expectations. So that's how we're managing it. Is there a bygone era or a bygone civilization <laughs> that we here in Australia, or in Sydney, we'll keep it Sydney-centric, that we should or could look in order to imbue our designers or perhaps our politicians um, with um, a new perspective or perhaps to re-energise you know, their focus on, and, or their imagination in terms of um, how we should be designing? Someone recently told me that... Um, I think they were from the UK, uh, from, from Scotland, actually. They said that they, um, they've come to Australia yet they're, they're in winter, in, in that Sydney winter, they're actually colder in their house than they were in Glasgow. So um, is, is there somewhere that we should be looking to, somewhere else, dare I say offshore or, or in the past, that we, we should be changing how we design our, our, our built environment? I mean, I think you know that's that's not a unique quote. That one, I, I've I've heard that from so many different mouths um, <laughs> of people coming from other countries saying, "I've never been so cold in Sydney," <laughs> because we don't. We have this bizarre um, belief that Sydney is this benign climate and it's it's beautiful all year round, and it does look pretty good all year round. I have to say, but it. It's cold in winter and it's bloody hot in summer and we need to moderate that environment through the, you know, the buildings that we live in. And I do know that um, the building I live in is, is totally um, permeable to the environment uh, <laughs> through its passive um, environmental management and it's, you know, it's, it's hot in summer and cold in winter. That's probably not the ideal. We should be designing that to be cool in summer and warm in winter. Um, and so I don't think, I think we can do better in that regard. I think, a lot, you know, we often think passive solar design to make buildings warm in winter and cool in summer uh, is very simple. It's actually quite complex. You have to have the right orientation. You have to have the right you know, access to breezes. You know, you could do that in a... Um, a rural setting where you can actually orient the house perfectly, you can capture the breeze perfectly, you can, you know, sight the sight the house so that it's, you know, in the um, wind shadow of the cold winter winds, you know, but ca catches the northeast breezes, you know, that are going to cool the house in the summer. But if you're in an urban environment, you know, and you're on a site which is landlocked and you're on the wrong side of the tracks and you're looking due west, 
you have to use technologies and you have to use double glazing. You have, there are another mediating mechanisms that we you need to use. And I think in the housing market, it's still at that very much the kind of the cottage builder mentality of um, cheap looks good, get it done. I mean, you know, it's profound when you fly over Western Sydney that every roof is dark grey. You have to wonder, you know, the thermal comfort and and the and then the air conditioning that probably comes as a consequence of those dark roofs is palpable, you know. And and I can only see it as fashion. It's fashion that people have dark roofs um, because you know grey is ubiquitous. Is now is the the fashion of the moment. Grey is new black. Grey is the new black. Um, well, I suppose in Western Sydney, grey is the new red terracotta tile. Um, but, you know, if we had white roofs in Western Sydney, that would make a huge impact on the heat load in those houses. If we had eaves, if we had, you know, I mean, double glazing is an obvious one in, in particular locations, uh, proper insulation, uh, tree cover. You know, these are really fundamental basics at the, you know, at the housing scale. But when you, <clears throat> I think when you get into more complex buildings, these, these are understood um, more readily and you do get more technology and more f- thermal performance and there's higher expectations from the marketplace in terms of building performance. But I do think at the domestic scale, um, we're still a long way behind the eight ball in terms of what's necessary to make sustainable, livable houses. Keep that in mind. You've been listening to Professor Helen Lockhead, the newly appointed president of the Australian Institute of Architects and the University of New South Wales' Dean of Built Environment. From the whole team here at Talking Architecture and Design, thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you.